Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Really excited today because we're going to do some 17th century history. We have with us Louisiana historian and author Heather Thornton, who is a specialist nonetheless in British Stuart history and restoration, in specifically the church. So welcome, Heather. Thank you. You have, an, And we also have Erica, don't we? Because uh, it is 6am in Louisiana, so she's asleep. She's going to sleep through this. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bless her. I heard a yawn and she didn't sound like she was inclined to get involved in the story. But this is a rollicking story you've got for us, isn't it? It is. It's it's the best of um it's one of my favorites that I found researching in different bits and when I kept finding when I was you know, one days you you know, you're in the you're in the archive and you're researching something and you're like, Oh wait, this is fun. Wait, there's more and you're like I yeah. need to find out what happened and rabbit holes that are more interesting than your actual point of research. Well, it actually tied into my research. So it's, you know, it's in my book, but, but at the same point is it's such a fantastically like vicious story. <laughs> and it just kind of, it encapsulates kind of that restoration, kind of the nastiness afterwards with, you know, there's so much vitriol that's in the press and just with, with the different sides that it's just, you know, in this, you think of like the church and it's like, oh, they should be, hey, you know, no, there was a lot, a lot of, and this one is the best because it's, it has all of the, all of the characters. You've got the king, you've got the bishops, the deans, like everyone's angry. It's always <laughs> it's, better when it's people who should know better, isn't it? You know, you would think so. Um, it doesn't always work that way. You know, they sometimes are like, no, no, we're good. And there were two other dioceses, Canterbury and Norwich also had um, conflict, but they handled it appropriately where Litchfield did not. Yeah. And they ended up it took 20 years, two archbishops, you know, and court of arches. Samuel Pepys even writes about it in his diary and his daily gossip. I mean, it just goes, it keeps, it, it just turned and turned and turned because it was just like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Okay, so let's start at the beginning with people then. Uh, what was the most pressing issue facing the Church of England at the Restoration? Um, one of the most pressing problems was finding enough people to fill the vacancies. When the Church of England was disbanded in the 1640s, um, so many people just were sequestered, they lost their livings, and so those churches were just empty for the most part. Some were used by different sectaries, but most of them were empty. And so they were huge gaping holes over most of the nation. Like something about like, you know, there's estimates. They don't. They're not of like 
between 60 and 90% were empty at different points. There's a huge number of vacancies, including most of the, um, the Episcopal sees were vacant just through death. Um, or, you know, for the part or like three or four surviving bishops at the restoration. And the only real requirement that they needed at the time at the restoration in 1660 was that the men had to have Episcopal ordination. They had to have like taken their, oh, there had to be ordained by a, a bishop. Um, and that opens up a whole host of other issues um, later on. So how did the Act for Settling Ministers create issues within the church? The Act for Settling Ministers comes out of this sort of like, okay, we just need them to be Episcopally ordained. The Act for Settling Minister basically said, okay, unless the predecessor survived, um, you know, someone who lost their living in the 1640s, if the predecessor still lived, the minister could leave. If they didn't, they could stay. And so long as they had an Episcopal, you know, and it was just kind of like to kind of like, it was kind of a Band-Aid. Like, this is going to take us a while to fix. So let's just let everyone stay where they are. Let's not have a huge amount of upheaval. Um, we've had so much upheaval over the last 20 years. Let everyone stay until we figure out where we're going. So it's essentially a Band-Aid, but it gave some people a sense of security that their living or just places were secure. And there'll be a great, it, there'll be an ejection when the Act of Uniformity is passed. Um in 1662, where you have to bow the knee, you have to agree with prayer book orthodoxy, which is one of the main tenets that's going to come about and that's going to cause a lot of conflict. And it will be the core of the conflict at Litchfield is whether or not you can enforce prayer book orthodoxy. Okay. So how do they try and settle these disputes? The um, the established way is if you have a dispute within a diocese, you go through the Bishop's court. There's a process Mm -hmm. where, um, ideally you, you want it pref- preferred, they wanted it done according to the canons and they the canons, like basically you had a series of rules. You had to bring your evidence, you had to bring your complaint. You filed a formal complaint, depending on who was, you know, the cathedral clergy, you have prebends, canons, the Dean and the Bishop. And depending on who was go, you would always go to the next person in line. Um, a preben would go to a canon, a canon would go to the Dean, the Dean could go to the Bishop. What happens is that you want to like kind of keep it in order. And the bishop is the final arbiter. Like once the bishop has ruled in his court, it should be, the matter should be settled. Um, the bishop could lay down judgment, so to speak, just like, you know, cause the ecclesiastical is, is part of the service of the ecclesiastical courts, but it only worked if everyone followed all of the steps. So everyone has to agree that this is the way we want it done hmm. because without a, you know, you know, law, how law goes, there are certain things you have to enter a plea, you have to do this, do that. And the English, um, the ecclesiastical courts were much like the English courts that they had to, you had to follow the, you had to follow the the steps. And if somebody refuses to enter a plea or something, you you have to like reinvent the wheel, so to speak, to kind of figure out how to move from it. And um, so basically that was the preferred method. This is what happens in Canterbury and in Norwich. They follow, they follow the, they follow the rules, so to speak and find a solution and everyone goes along their merry way. They may not like it, but they don't, they don't fight it like um, Woodwill at Litchfield. Right. So what conflict existed within the church and what modes existed to solve problems? The biggest conflict initially was um, how do you fill the vacancies? Yeah. And the next big thing is how do you fill the bishoprics? Who are going to be the bishops? Um, and who are going to name the bishops? Um, Archbishop Juxton survived. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He survived 
through the restoration. But by 1660, he was incredibly old uh, in very poor health. I think he was like 78 at the restoration. And he had been very inactive during the 1640s and 50s. And much of the survival of the Church of England in the Interregnum had fallen upon university men. And, or less, or, you know, people who had a connect, real close connections to Charles the first, they had been royal, they had been royal chaplains and they are the men who get elevated. These are men with very strong royalist pedigrees who felt, who did lose and suffer a great deal, but also who had communicated throughout the 1650s in particular about what to, what to do when they could return. How do they fix this? And one of the ultimate things that is lost in the restoration settlement of the church of England is the Elizabethan settlement. Um, the great idea of the Via Medea, the church of England being broad enough to encompass a great many deals, which you see in the early Stuart church with, you know, having both Puritans and non and less Puritan account uh, and Armenians being raised to bishoprics under James the first um, is a, is a casualty. And part of that is due to this sort of, you know, it becomes a big problem. The church has to define itself. Um, yeah. It's all had always kind of been vague. And what happens in the 1660s is that the church of England is forced to finally, after, you know, being existing for a hundred years or hundred plus to finally truly define Ooh. its, its positions and not its theological positions more. They were more outward positions and, um, and that real kind of connection to kind of the, the church and the King, that kind of that real high royalist position where, you know, the church and the king were to be two pillars of society. And the church of England was that the church that was the pillar, not all these dissenting groups that had emerged um, and fractured or broken society um, in their opinions. It's just a mess, isn't it? It was, it was a massive mess. And it doesn't help that throughout the 1660s and 1660, there are like all of these groups that want to, you know, you know, usher in, you know, the fifth monarchist and the millenarians, they're all like, Ooh, we should like try to violently overthrow the government again, because that's exciting. And, and so there's always terror and, you know, the big groups, some of the bigger non kind of the sectaries, um, the more radical ones, the Quakers, you know, conveniently became pacifist at the restoration, despite that, you know, they had not been, which is kind of what people always are surprised by. The Quakers had like destroyed the town of Carlisle in the Civil War, like rioting. <laughs> you know, so they they conveniently converted to pacifism, right about the Restoration, and you know, got in good and just kind of became. But it, it was very. There's a lot of like all of the gray is going to be eliminated. It becomes a very stark. You either do that. This is what makes you Anglican, and this is what makes you other. Versus trees. The previous times where it all been like Anglicanism was a very broad definition like what it mattered and this will not remain it will actually split in the 18th century in the 19th century the non-juring schism will be part of this as well but it just kind of like they have to define themselves and that's the one of the biggest biggest issues um and they do try they'll they'll call a a convention um at the same time parliament meets the bishops will be restored to the house of lords in 1662 or very early on as soon as the bishop was fulfilled and the bishops are all going to be filled at this point in 1660 through the office of the, the, the chapel royal. Um, Charles II's royal chaplains are going to be kind of the people who promote and settle a lot of ministers. 
because they're the first ones who are restored. This is Gilbert Sheldon, George Morley, Matthew Wren. Um, and they kind of take over. Bish- uh, Sheldon will become the Bishop of London at this point, so he will be one of the primary movement shakers. But he and Morley and Wren were all associates and friends, had communicated throughout the interregnum, so they had a plan going in. Um, and they they were and they had talked theology, written theology, discussed theology about how do we how do we protect ourselves? Don't touch that from that happening again. And that was a real fear that they lost so much. Um, I always some people ask because I, I did my primary research on Gilbert Sheldon, who did become the Archbishop mm. in this era, and people ask me, "What do you think would have happened to Sheldon if he hadn't been Archbishop?" If the restoration, I go, his real love was the University of Oxford. He was the, he was the warden of all souls. He enjoyed, he himself was not an academic, but he, he read and encouraged academics. And I think he would have ended up and just stayed there. Like he never would have left. He would have been a grand old university don, possibly the chancellor. And he would have like had a fine, outstanding kind of academic career and never been pushed into this sort of position of prominence. But he does kind of have that kind of uh, university background, and a lot of a lot of the men who are promoted will have similar, you know, between the visitation and the cleansing of the universities. They have a lot of they lost a lot. Um, it wasn't yeah. some people survived the interregnum, and it wasn't a bad thing. Uh, a lot of the university men, you know, they don't have families. Um, they are attacked very harshly. The universities were plundered um, pretty strongly. And they watched, you know, the places that they loved be destroyed. And I think that really impacted and they feared that. And I think that's a real kind of undercurrent in some of their decisions that they make. They feared what would happen if the world turned upside down again. And so they needed to survive, but they also needed to find, figure out how to prevent that. And to them, the those who did not toe the line, the Puritans, those, they could point fingers very clearly at like, hey, you dismantled my living. You, you destroyed my church. This, the great love of my, you know, what I did, you took it apart. And so there's a lot of that going on. Um, to just, and so the problems, they'll go through Parliament. Um, when the bishops return to the House of Lords, the bishops will be very, very powerful in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Cavalier Parliament, and also they will also do um, conventions to re reauthorize and revamp. There'll be a 1662 edition of the prayer book that will be put out, um, and that becomes actually the standard prayer book that all modern prayer books are based upon. What I find so interesting about this um, is that there's been the upheaval of the Reformation and the civil war so it's like a double whammy on the church isn't it so the church has just been like battered from pillar to post jeez at this point and the church you know it, it has like they officially disband the church in um 1646 um and then they start taking and the churches in certain groups you would think churches should be sacrosanct that you shouldn't mm. like attack a church or something and there were several notable churches that will be basically pillaged the collegiate chapels will be victims. They will all be just sort of destroyed. Christ Church in Oxford in particular will be like, they'll take all of the, the choir and all of the, all of the wooden ornamentation and use it for firewood. <laughs> just, uh, uh, Litchfield will be um, complete. It takes, it takes it till the 19th century to be fully restored. They remove most of the roof. Um, the central spire will be pulled down. All of the stained glass will be broken. I mean, so there's a lot, 
So some of the churches were attacked at different points by um, not the Royalists, but the Puritans and the others and others out there. Um, the sectaries would sometimes take their ire out on the, the, the churches, cathedral churches in particular, and the collegiate churches were looted. And if they weren't looted, they were, they gave their money. They gave a lot of their, their, uh, speech, their, their, uh, material objects of like silver and gold, like communion plates and things to, to the king to fund, uh, the Royalist army. A lot of Erica missing. is dismayed by this. <laughs> She's very dismayed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us what happens at diocese level? Um, with this conflict in deanery chapter with the bishops um it'll start it kind of depends it usually has to do with somebody doing something that they shouldn't um a lot of the time sometimes it's kind of like it seems very petty um someone who is not keeping records correctly or if they remove there's lots of rules about like you know everything um there are rules about like okay so a prebend or a dean or canon will take the records of the church and take them to their own home. Well, that's right. pretty bad. Um, there, um, that's what the conflict in Canterbury was all about was about who, who could keep records because two men were eligible. And so basically they solved it by allowing each one to keep different sorts of records. So that worked. Um, in Norwich, the Dean at the time, Edward, Edward Reynolds was Bishop there. Um, and the dean, like, basically, like, took the communion vessels to use in his own home, <laughs> like, like to pour wine for himself. He also it's like when you work a in a bar and you start kidnapping all the plates and cutlery and glasses. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, like, this is, but I mean, like, you can't go and take it, like, and use it at your own house. Um, and then he also had a reputation for being someone of a, he was a striker. He liked to fight. <laughs> so... Um, that caused, they, those were managed in house. Like, you know, they were, they were done, you know, fought, they followed the rules. Everyone was kind of brought to toe the line. They were, they were forced to like, you know, make obedience to the Bishop and agree not to do such things, return what they had taken. Um, and that's where Litchfield differs, um, because it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, Norwich Canterbury shows, this is how it's supposed to work. Like everyone does what they're supposed to. Everyone follows the rules, the steps, Everyone listens to the bishop's judgment and follows the bishop's judgment. And in Litchfield, none of this happens. <laughs> Why are okay. we looking at such nonsense in Litchfield and Coventry? Um, Litchfield and Coventry, um, a lot of it has to do with what happened to Litchfield in the Civil War. Um, Litchfield was under siege three different times, twice by the parliamentary forces and once by the royalists to take it back. Um, the cathedral there was in- badly damaged, as I said earlier. Um, the roofs, the central spires, all the stained glass was destroyed. And so whoever was going to come into the diocese, and Litchfield is a split diocese. It's Litchfield and Coventry. So it's, that's already problematic. It's not, they're not a unit. It's not complete. It's not one spot. Um, but the cathedral is in Litchfield, which is where the bishop will live and the deans and the, and the canons and all that. Um, so whoever is going to be elevated to the, to the sea in Litchfield is going to have a huge undertaking. They're going to have to work toward the restoration of the cathedral. But also Litchfield, because it had a huge number of sectaries, um, Presbyterians in particular, that were in the city. 
that were in that diocese, they were very, it was a hotbed of nonconformist thought. So both, not only do you have the, hey, we've destroyed the cathedral, but also this has been a, there's been a lot of nonconformists hanging about here for a very long time, and they're very well established. And so it's kind of a double-edged, it's a double problem um, of what's happening at Litchfield. And that's going to be like a very difficult thing to fix. Um, as John Hackett, who will become the Bishop of Litchfield and Coventry in 1661, will find out. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, so these are our main characters, aren't they? John Hackett and Thomas Wood. So who are they? Hackett um, was um, a royalist. He had been a chaplain, actually. He'd been a royal chaplain to James I. Um, and in the civil war, he had lost most of his livings. He remained, he kept one. Um, he was, he was a married man. He had kids. So he basically had to keep them for him. Like he had to provide for his family. He, he remained loyal to the prayer book, but he, he did it in a way that he could get, he wouldn't get in trouble with the authorities at the time. Hackett was one of sort of these subversive, like, uh, Church of England men during the interregnum. So basically there were the, the, the Puritans and the Presbyterians wanted extemporaneous prayers. They wanted like sermons off the cuff, all these things. And so Hackett did what several men did. Um, they just memorized the book of common prayer. And so they would use these book of common prayer prayers and just kind of recite them. Um, and like people who knew what they were doing got comfort for it, but people who didn't recognize it, they were thinking, Oh, they just, they have beautiful prayers here. And so they were able to kind of do it, do it, do some of the things that like the rituals for baptisms and, de- and burials with some of that for people who wish the, that, that orthodoxy, um, like, uh, John Evelyn, um, basically had a minister that he knew, um, during the interregnum who could come and baptize his children. Yeah. Um, bury them when they passed, um, using the prayer book, but also doing it kind of incognito through memorization. And Hackett was one of those men as well. Um, he will actually die in 1670, which is in the midst of this big conflict. Thomas Wood, uh, on the other hand, was the third son. So he basically, there's the heir, the spare and the church. So he basically followed that route. Mm. Um, he had, a, he was attached to a very influential family at court. His family had him appointed as a royal chaplain. Um, he's and he was also kind of a very bad uh, priest. Um, he baptized exactly one child in his entire clerical career, um, a girl. <laughs> well, he did later married, just to kind of make the way up creepy the creepy circle of life thing going on there. Yeah, he was twenty nine years older than she was. 
Um, but she was the sister of the youngest sister of Sir James Claver, Clavering, who was a baronet. Um, her his wife's name was Grace. Um, but the, the Claverings were attached to a very radical Puritan faction at Newcastle upon Tyne. So he in, he marries into a radical Puritan fact as the dean of the cathedral. Okay, so he's supposed to be like. This is all, and he doesn't marry until 1666. So after the Clarendon goes and pass, all of the rules about nonconformists and all of the things about associating with him have all gone into, into effect. He marries a noted Puritan. And not alone, <laughs> just the creep factor. The whole, like, he baptized her as an infant and married her when she was not an, as an adult. Just, it's creepy to think it about when you tell that. It is creepy as hell, isn't it? Very, um, and during the interregnum, because he had family money, um, Wood has Wood doesn't suffer at all. He goes on a grand tour. He spends time in Italy, where he decides he hates popery. Um, shocking as a Puritan. Um, he spends a lot of time abroad. He doesn't suffer any deprivation. He just he, sounds like know, a total he, knob, doesn't he? <laughs> he wasn't a nice guy at all. Yeah. Like, and um, I mean, and like you're coming into people with like you're coming into contact with many of these men. And the only thing he was really interested in is that he'd been promised a prebend at the restoration, so he got that as well. So he was hated not only in Litchfield, but he was also a prebend at the canon at the Cathedral of Durham. And it's kind of like both of them hated him. He was incredibly disliked, but he kept going on because he was so well connected. You know? Even Erica sounds disgusted by him. Yeah, yeah. Um, she very, <laughs> she's just finds him completely distasteful. He and so he is named the dean, um, largely through the machinations of his family. It's not his own. Um, it, it, it's nothing. It's not on his own merit. Let's put it that his family arranged to have him named dean. Um, he's a political kind of appointee. He's just um, one of these guys that just gets handed everything, isn't he? He was. He was very lucky, very fortunate. Um, mm. And actually how he becomes bishop is part of a backrooms deal as well, which we'll get to. Mm. But so there's this, all this conflict, you know, like Hackett, who, and then there you have Wood. And so you have these two men who are, are like polar opposites personality-wise to mm. begin with. Hackett was very, was very well liked. He, um, his letters, for the most part, when you read his own writing, they're very friendly in many respects, especially to the archbishop, they had been friends for a long time. They had been royal chaplains together to Charles the first, um, as well. And, um, he had a very friendly tone. And so when he's laying out his problems, it's more like he's approaching his friend than he is like, what do you, what do you want me to do about this? This is what, and so, and so because of that, uh, in the Tanner manuscripts, you find these fantastic passages about Dean Wood. um, and I'm going to read you one because it's just Brilliant. fantastic. <laughs> 1668, Hackett wrote to Sheldon about the Dean, uh, kind of like laying out the initial problem. I will bring our illiterate Dean on the stage and his lack Latin ridiculousness. First, he will keep no chapter nor suffer any to be called, among other reasons, because the residentians bring forth statutes to him in Latin, and he understands not a line till Greswold puts it into English. He told Mr. Archibald he had not read a book these two years. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love that. What, lack Latin ridiculousness. That's a burn, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. And there's like one, like, and they're real. So, and that's like my favorite, his lack Latin ridiculousness, because he didn't, he wasn't educated like the others. And of course, church records are kept in Latin still at this point, or a lot of them are kept in Latin. Um, some are kept in English. It just kind of depends where you go 
Um, but uh, in the cathedral cap- chapters, it was an assumption that you were literate in at least one dead language. And um, he was, you know, his he did have a BA, but he doesn't have the the, the MA. And one of the big things that the the dean of the chap the cathedral is supposed to do is supposed to like make sure that they they're the one who forms the rotation for the, the preaching duties of the cathedral. Like who's supposed to ha- who's supposed to lead the service when? Um, that's one of their big jobs. Like who's supposed to lead the services or who's supposed to lead the prayers? And cathedrals, of course, you know, even now in lockdown, you know, in you know in London, the cathedrals are still doing. You have the you you have like the resident the canon the dean. And sometimes a bishop leading different prayers, live streaming them now, but they're still doing that. And this is what had to go on in the day to day. It was a little more, there were a few more than, done then, but like this kind of like the activities, the daily life of a cathedral that, that he refused to, and it was his job as the dean. Okay. And he just kind of was like, nope. And this is one of the things that causes the conflict. The other thing has to do with the rebuilding um, of the cathedral. Everyone, um, the bishop, the prebends, the canons, all contributed to the rebuilding of Litchfield. Litchfield was in ruins. And so there was a great attempt to get it back where they could hold services in it. And it was a lot, a lot of work, and it was very expensive. They were given a great deal of money by Charles II, but they also raised money within the church from the, from the cathedral clergy. And everyone was expected to contribute and would promise to contribute, and then he wouldn't. And then to hide the fact that he didn't contribute, he basically took the register book, which had basically what everyone owed the church, and took it to his house. So he couldn't be called out on his debt. <laughs> if I just hide the evidence, it'll all be fine. Yeah, basically. But then they're like, wait, wait, you're not. Well, one of the things, and this is one of the things that happens at Can- um, Canterbury, is you're not supposed to remove the register books from the, the chapter house. They're supposed to, they are the property of the cathedral chapter. The cathedral clergy are, they were, you're not supposed to remove the, the custos fabric. The he, dis, he does that. And then here's another passage I marked because it's just so fun. He marries in 1666 to his, like, his young wife. And um, basically the peculiars are trying to get him to call a meeting so they can bring they in, And like in with the church, you have to call a, to bring in a charge. You have to do these things. They have to be done in order. And so the peculiars and the canons are all like, we need to bring you up. And so he just refuses to come into the cathedral. So he can't be presented with the paperwork. And so <laughs> That's a really grown up way of responding, isn't it? Oh yeah. Hit right, hack it right in February. I wonder what he does at home for he hath not stirred out of doors since the 23rd of December. Never came to public praises, nor his wife. She never comes to praises, but now and then before Christmas, a sermon and 13 festival days of Christmas, which makes the Puritans mightily resort to him whose patron he is upon all occasions. And it makes him as ridiculous as his lack Latin. Ouch. So basically, um, and you know, and there were like some of the complaints against wood were legit. Um, he refused to call the chapter meeting. Um, one of the problems, there was a vicarage that was attached to the cathedral that had been vacant that needed to be filled by the chapter house. Um, they had to decide there was some ruins the church owned that needed to be either, like, restored or destroyed. And, you know, so all of those sorts of things kind of, like, tie into the problems that they were having with, with him. And they finally, the canons and the bishop decide that Wood has been recalcitrant long enough. They will bring him up on charges of excommunication. Mm. And so a bishop can't excommunicate a member. And so Hackett excommunicated Wood in his diocese in court, announced the charge in early in 1668. 
Okay, so at this point, Wood goes to Durham. He is living as a prebend in Durham, so he goes to Durham. He creates problems in Durham. They don't like him there either. <clears throat> Does anyone like him and, anywhere? <laughs> and he was very rude when he tried to do it. Wood will basically deny everything. I didn't do that. That's not what he did. Like, you look, you took the stuff out. The, you know, it's pretty obvious. You know, I mean, there may be some exaggeration about the bishop. And, you know, he's irritated. But, like, the truth of the matter is, like, he was not super very – he was not good at his his job. Mm. And so it just continues, and and it's it, – um, there will be more conflict. Wood will – Hackett will try to restore Wood. Hackett keeps trying. To his credit, he keeps trying to bring Wood into line. Um, he keeps trying to do the right thing, to bring him back into the church, to have him, you know, bow the knee to the – you know – agree to be uniform and wood just refuses just you know um he just he's not interested um and hackett will die in 1670 um and this and this whole conflict is still unresolved and normally when a bishop dies the dean is often elevated to the sea and that's kind of a dean deaneries are often seen as training grounds for episcopal sees so a lot of times bishops will be promoted to a see so this is where it gets even more interesting and you get to the, the, the Duchess of Cleveland and the King and everyone else. Yeah. How are they okay. connected into this story? Sir Henry Wood is Thomas Wood's oldest brother. And he was an influential courtier and he was popular with the set around Barbara Villiers, the Duchess of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in that kind of that faster set around the King. Um, also, what has happened by 1670 is the king is, you know, Charles II. He was very much influenced by who held sway in his bed, um, more so than any real devotion to anything. In the 1660s, the men who had supported his father and him had come to positions of power. But by 1670, many of them were old. They were critical of some of his lifestyle choices, let's put it that way. Not <laughs> his lifestyle choices right. are questionable in many cases, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've called um, him on this before, the randiest man ever to hold the throne of England. Yeah, he still has descendants all around. Um, there are still descendants of Charles II just popping up, you know, through DNA cess. Okay, so Sir Henry Wood was arranged to marry his only surviving do- child, who was his daughter, Mary, to the king's oldest son by the Duchess of Cleveland. Mm. So you can see the kind of circles. And Wood would only agree to the arranged marriage between the king's bastard and his daughter, his only surviving child, if his brother was given the bishopric of Litchfield. (laughs) So the king... Because he wanted his, he wanted his son married. Uh, he wanted to keep Barbara happy. He wanted to keep Wood happy because he was probably funding some entertainments at this point. To be um, fair, you need to keep Barbara happy. You do, you do. And so, Wood is given the bishopric of Litchfield, despite <laughs> the protest of the canons. So everyone's kind of like, how did this happen? Well, they know how it happened, but they're just kind of like, really? Prior to this, like, Litchfield, uh, Wood had had, before Hackett's death, Wood had had Hackett excommunicated. Hackett had had Wood excommunicated. They go up before the court of the arches. Um, basically, it's a mess. And it's being gossiped about in London. It's just not good for the church. It's not, it's just, he's just, and he's unrepentant. Wood is like, and every time you bring it up to him, he goes, I have done nothing wrong. Like, he's just one of these, I am innocent. I have done nothing wrong. Every time, you know, I married a Puritan, I have done nothing wrong. 
I, you know, I haven't been to church. I have done nothing wrong. I, you know, I haven't paid to rebuild the chapter. I have done nothing wrong. So basically over and over. And then he gets rewarded for this bad behavior, essentially. So then the second part of the story, John Hackett's, the Bishop Hackett's son, his eldest son, John, and Wood now get into conflict. So John Hackett the second, basically over the position of his father's possessions as a bishop that should be divided among the bishop's heirs. And Wood doesn't want to give anything to Hackett's heirs, despite the fact some of the things were actually theirs. And so this has to go all the way through the court. At the same point, when when Wood is replaced, Lancelot Addison became the dean of Litchfield, and eventually in 1683, and Wood is the bishop, and William Sancroft becomes Archbishop of Canterbury when, um, in, 18, in 1677 after Gilbert Sheldon dies. And they've tried repeatedly to, to like, but he's too well protected. Wood, and Wood is not a good bishop. He's kind of, you know, he's disinterested. He's not a, um, you know, and, and, and within all this kind of period where he's not doing what he needs to do, this is the time the Test Act is passed where you have to be a member of the standing of the Church of England. You have to have taken communion. Um, once a year to hold any public, to be in parliament, to be a member of the government, to be in the Navy. This is when the Duke of York is outed as a, as a, as a Catholic. There's lots of things going on. They're trying to like reorder society and Wood's just not. Um, so when he, when Lancelot Addison becomes the Bishop and it kind of like just simmers for a long time, there's a lot of unease and a lot of distress and Wood just gets a good, he's just like, I'm protected. But by the 1680s, the position is different. And this is because Charles II has no legitimate heir. And Wood is going to be forced finally to bow the knee to the ecclesiastical authorities because the king's position is going to shift. Charles II, by the 1680s, desperately needs the support of the church so that his brother can succeed him as king. The secession crisis is going to force Charles II to basically make wood is going to be forced to bend the knee because of things that happened in the 1680s mm. in 1683 lancelot addison becomes the dean of canterbury of litchfield he will send detailed reports to the archbishop of canterbury about wood's bad behavior and finally finally in 1684 so 16 years after it began um, Wood will, for, will be excommunicated once again, not get it overturned, and he will be forced to pay back what he owes and forced to bow to the ecclesiastical authorities um, because by 1684, Charles cannot afford to anger the churchmen. He needs them because of the secession crisis yeah. and the exclusion parliaments. He needs the support of the church. This whole high church, this church and king party, he needs them. And so he will finally bow the knee and it'll finally be solved. Um, John Hackett will finally get the monetary response he owes. Um, Wood, Wood was fined um, 2,565 pounds. Um, Andrew Hackett, who was one of the heirs of John Hackett, um, was, had to pay um, 1,520 pounds. But basically, Wood was basically forced to prostrate himself before the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he lives pretty quietly after that. Um, he, he's he's kind of watched. He doesn't yeah. get away with a lot. He doesn't try to interfere as much. He's, he's an older man. 
He also, his health by this point was not great. He dies in 1692, but um, his health was declining as well. Wood um, leaves no children. So um, there's no sort of like settlement after that. Um, what's also interesting about Litchfield is that several of the, the canons who, one of the canons who wrote against him and his letters exist, actually non-jured. Um, he was a non-juring in 1690. So there, so there's a very strong high church position in Litchfield, despite all this, the fact that the, uh, and of course, Sancroft, of course, is the most famous of the non-jurors. Wood will be succeeded by William Lloyd. Um, mm-hmm. Not the William Lloyd that non-jurors, the other one. Um, but it is just such a fun, crazy story. Like it just, you know, because it kind of, it's like a, a microcosm of like how, how, how fragmented the church was in some ways there was outwardly, it looked like it was very well put together and it recovered very strongly, but inside there are these fantastic stories of just craziness happening. And that was a rare thing. Most of the church, many people, when the church is restored, many people went back to the prayer book, went back into the fold of the church of England very, very easily. You know, the great Compton census basically says less than 10% of the British of the English population was anywhere close to having, um, ties to sectaries. And then of course it doesn't last the settlement because, you know, at the, at the glorious revolution, the, you know, the whole idea of removing a legitimate monarch when you've made church and King, those two pillars of society to remove a legitimate King creates just another bank on James the second being so bad though, did they? (laughs) Well, and you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, James probably would not have been that terrible as a king because he promised to church, but I, there was such a fear of popery. Um, it, it would both within the church of England and without, it doesn't help that you have like the popish plot and things that happen the same, you know, in within decades preceding this, you know, the church, the Roman Catholic church was like the great boogeyman, you know, there, you know, be good or the Jesuits will get you, you know what I mean? Like the legacy of Mary, isn't it? Yeah. In many ways, but also, you know, even people like, you know, William Laud was a great, dis- I mean, and even some of these people who that they hated at different times, you know, everyone made their name by arguing with the Jesuits. That was how you made your name as a, a to defend Protestantism as you went and argued with the Jesuits mm. or a Cardinal. Uh, Laud did this with great success, actually, um, among others, you know, it becomes quite interesting that, um, you know, and the act of toleration when it's passed it makes the Church of England prime, you know, in Britain for ages until the Great Reform Acts, I think, is when it changes. Um, but it allows for the first sort of multicultural or multi-ethnic um, or multi-religious, at least Christian religion, in Britain. Um, and it's always funny. I, I teach American history sometimes, uh, often as well. And I always tell, we talk about the Puritans and I'm like, you know, it is one of the great ironies of history that the Puritans are, are like, you know, going after witches at the same time, the British Puritans are experiencing their first taste of, li- of religious, religious freedom because they're allowed, they're legally allowed to exist for the first time. And they, they, two events at once. Cause it's funny always I, I it's one of those great things that the puritans were so oh you know the, the church of england is so terrible and awful and then they go around and do the exact same thing yeah um i actually they do it worse because you know the fines that you know the church of england the fines for being a puritan in the restoration a lot of times are monetary he might go to jail they weren't going to like kill you <laughs> you know they weren't going to banish you into the wilderness you know um, and so it is one of those great ironies that the Puritans were much, much more, I mean, they didn't burn people. That's the great thing. Like, they didn't burn witches. I'm like, no, that's a European thing. It doesn't cross the Atlantic. Thank God. 
Thank you so much, Heather, for coming on to try and unravel just a little bit of the insanity that is 200 years of British uh, church history following Henry VIII. It is a clusterfuck, isn't it? It's, but it's a fun one. Yes. Like, I think it's really interesting. And I think, you know, people, there's so much done on the Tudors. And I'm like, can you please, like, like and they always make stuff up, like, about the Tudors. And the Tudors are so much, like, they kind of sensationalize them. I'm like, just look at the Stuarts. You don't even have to sensationalize anything. These people are crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Alrighty. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to meet you. Join us on Monday when Heather McAdam will be with us. She will be telling us all about her amazing best-selling book, The 999. This looks at a Slovakian shipment, the first Jewish shipment of women to go to Auschwitz in World War II. Don't miss that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.